D2C wise, I mean, I would teach yourself as much as possible. Um, I think we've been really good at teaching ourselves and all the information's on the internet. So like once you've taught yourself, you can then make a decision on where the gaps are. But I think if you just said, I'm going to hire, I want to start a D2C brand and I'm going to hire a head of D2C, then you're wasting money. Welcome to Hypercurious, a show that is all about finding happiness by embracing changes and following our curiosity. My name is Beta Luca. I'm a BAFTA-winning serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and multi-hyphenate. Each week, I unveil the most intriguing aha moments and leaps of learnings of successful leaders, founders, authors, and artists, and how they achieve incredible things by staying hypercurious. Today in the show, we have Hugh Thomas, the US-based British CEO and founder of Ugly Drinks. Founded in 2015, Ugly takes on the sugary soda industry with a super irreverent and rebellious brand. Before Ugly Drinks, Hugh worked in the brand teams at Vita Coco Coconut Water and Heinz Ketchup. Today we talk a lot about brand building and how to strike the right balance of rebelliousness and familiarity when you're building a challenger brand so you don't risk staying too niche. We discuss Hugh's biggest lessons learned from expanding his UK-based business into America and the importance of working on your mental health when you're creating the company of the future. Hugh, I'm thrilled to have you on Hypercurious today. You have a disruptive, rebellious brand, and I'm a fan of it. So for that to happen, I know that you have to be a Hypercurious human being, right? Tell us a little bit about yourself. So yeah, a bit of my background. I'm obviously from the UK. I live in New York now, so I've, I've made the leap over the pond. I've actually not been back because of coronavirus back to the UK for a long time at this point. But I grew up uh, in the Midlands, a place called Worcester, where Worcestershire sauce is from. Liam Perrins went to university in the UK. When I was a student, I worked for Vitamin Water. Uh, so I was the guy on, at university with an, with an apartment full of drinks. So that's kind of when I got my first taste of it. When I was at school, I was uh, always trying different types of business, uh, whether it was car boot sales or, you know, selling things on eBay when the early, in the early internet years and using my mum and dad's dial-up internet and spending a fortune on the... Nobody's able to phone the house uh, because they couldn't get through. And then after university, I knew I wanted to work in food and drink. It was always a passion of mine. I just love that everybody has an opinion. Everybody eats and drinks. Whether you like it or don't like it, you, you can talk about it um, and it connects people, certainly in packaged food and drink. The brands say so much and sure everyone has their favorite brands that mean something to them, whether it's from childhood and then that reminds you of certain times, certain occasions. And I just think that's so special. That's why I fell in love with it. So when I, my first job out of university was on two of those brands that bring back memories. One was Heinz Ketchup uh, and then I worked on Heinz Beans, which if you're from the UK is you know, as nostalgic a brand as any. I remember when I was a student, I used to buy, I think I used to buy own label supermarket beans because I was trying to save pennies, which seems crazy looking back. And I remember when I went to work at Heinz, I had that first taste of Heinz beans for a few years since I'd been at home. And it just took me straight back. And that's, I think, a real moment where I was like, wow, there's something special about brands and memories and smells and tastes. But what working in food was great. Working at a big company was was great for my experience, but also frustrating as a young entrepreneurial marketeer. 
Um, and so knew I wanted to, you know, get back into beverage, which is so fast paced and fun. Um, and that's when I made the move to Vita Coco. And since Vita Coco, which is a coconut water, started my own drinks company called Ugly. So yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting journey, and like I feel like I'm only really just getting started. So uh, hopefully that gives you a bit of a background to who I am. So so you were in this gigantic branch, right? And uh, working there must have been very different from running your own startup. So how did you decide to jump into the unknown and and start Ugly? I guess the funny thing is, right? I spent most of my time. At in my previous jobs complaining about all the process and structure. And then from day one of starting my own company, all I'm doing is adding in process and structure. So it's not total chaos. <laughs> so it's funny how you learn lessons <laughs> in reverse sometimes. Yeah. And I'm looking back now and I'm like, ah, that's why they needed that process in place because, and that's, I had to sit in that boring meeting because it's incredibly important that you have to manage, you know, this and that. Yeah. I worked at a big company and to be honest, like, I'm still friends with a lot of the people I worked with at both companies. There were some amazing people there, and I'd say lessons I learned from everybody I've worked with. But there was that fire in my belly, fire entrepreneurially, that, and the itch had to be scratched. Started the business when I was, what, 24? So kind of still young, felt like I had nothing to lose, um, as good a time as any to take on the world's biggest companies, and just um, wanted to disrupt the status quo and um, had a particular a bone to pick with sugar in beverages. And I felt that consumers often get blamed for being overweight, but really it's the system and the food and drink products that have been shoved down our throats and marketed at us for a hundred years that are really causing the problems. There's, you know, 35 to 40 grams of sugar in a can of soda and everybody was drinking soda for 50 years, right? Without even considering the consequences, much like smoking cigarettes. And so when I really learned about sugar and then when i really learned about the impact of drinking it so you're not even chewing there's nothing to there's no your body doesn't have to do any work to get the sugar like eating an apple or you know eating some fruit and vegetables where you're actually doing some work and digesting and there's fiber and other nutritional benefits you have a can of soda it's liquidized sugar in a dark brown liquid hits your body so quickly when i really learned that i just felt wow soda is so big it's so big in the uk so big in america And then you start looking at, you know, other, you know, every country in the world, you can buy a can of soda, right? And, and the issue is getting bigger as these markets develop. And um, that became the kind of mission and the itch we wanted to the scratch and the thing we wanted to take on and try and make a water brand that was fun. And that was what really inspired the, the leap, because you obviously always wanted to start your own company. But actually, I think you have to find something. There's a Japanese phrase, ikigai, which is kind of your purpose or what, I think it's what, what gets you out of bed in the morning. And it's not quite like follow your dreams. It's not quite that advice. It's more like do what you're good at, do what you can get paid for, do what the world needs. Um, and there's an intersection. I can't remember the fourth part of it. We'll do what you're passionate about as well. And there's an intersection of those things. And I felt that at the time, having worked where I'd worked and learned what I'd learned and the passion and what the world needed, that that was, that was the kickstart to go, okay, this feels like something I could spend 10, 20, 30 years working on, uh, which I think is part of that decision in the early days. So that was when you've got that fire and, you know, working at Vitacoco was amazing. I, you know, it was infectious working in a small team like that, which was growing so quickly. It was like being in a sports team. And when you've worked somewhere like that, it's hard to go backwards to a more corporate environment. So, you know, only made sense to, to make the leap and put our own little team together. 
I love that it, it's such a big fight and it's a systematic fight and it's much bigger than yourself. It's much bigger than any brand, right? And so I totally understand why that, that becomes a fire in your belly because it's like, well, let, let's change the world for real, right? You know, change the uh, obesity and, you know, everything that the system tells you that is good for you, that it's actually not good for you. Exactly. Yeah. And you look at, you know, look at the last 12 months, I think, in the US, 78% of hospitalizations for a coronavirus are people who are obese or overweight. I think in the UK, 60% of people are overweight now, 30% are obese. So the same stats in the US, there's 100 million pre-diabetics in America. We're not talking about small issues. I personally believe sugar is the number one issue um, and hidden sugars in particular that people don't know about. There's a big difference between grabbing a chocolate bar or a tub of ice cream knowing what you're eating, you know, those things are treats, right? And drinking a can of something that is marketed, that tells you it's going to make you happy or um, make you more beautiful or something like that. And so that was kind of my thing that fired me up. And I'm just rebellious in general. So why not take on the big companies? <laughs> exactly. And, and you chose a rebellious kind of vertical, or how can I say, an angle of rebelliousness that adds a lot of humor to that, right? So the brand is super irreverent. It doesn't take itself too seriously. How did you decide on this direction? Is it something that is coming from your personality or it was very deliberate, a market study or something? No, I, it's, a really, it's a great question. And um, I think great branding is a balance of art and science, ultimately. I think one of the reasons our brand stands out so much and it's so is because it's authentic and comes from the soul. The words are the words that I would say. The words on the can, the words on the website, the type of pictures, the, the colors, they are words that come from me and our team and our team fits these values as well around it. So the brand is more than just the packaging. Why that's great is because it makes you really hard to copy. And I think a lot of new brands look at what's come before and then replicate it or tweak it or borrow a font, borrow a color, millennial pink, Helvetica, put it on a, you know, millennial cozy aesthetic and then build a website and you're good to go. But from my point of view, that is a short, short term way of building brands. The most iconic brands are the ones that last 100 years and all of them are authentic. All of them come from real authenticity and, and stand out with bold colors and, and a bold approach. So that's kind of always been there. And then, you know, I think we were looking at a kind of a post-minimalist aesthetic like three, four years ago. We had that inkling that everything had been stripped back and very clean and millennial and soft pastel colors. And we could see that there was a change in aesthetic coming. And that certainly with the younger de demographic and generation who wanted bright colors, something to be less polished. That was what our name was about with Ugly. And then, and then I guess that going back a step, the, the brand was always about telling the truth and transparency. I think the previous president in America had invented the phrase fake news and alternative facts, like when we were coming up with the branding. And then in the UK, you had that Brexit bus with the NHS stat on it, which was totally false. And the generation, you know, whatever political affiliation you are, whatever you believe, I think people just want to read facts to make up their own mind. And we felt that in food and beverage, there was a lot of misleading information out there. And a lot of big food and beverage companies have been, you know, been saying a lot for 100, 120, 150 years, been telling you something's good for you when it really isn't. And so we got this idea of the ugly truth and building a brand around, you know, no fake marketing promises, no BS, you know, no calorie, you know, no sugar, no calories, no sweeteners. You can just drink a can of ugly, have no guilt with it at all, replaces 
you know, that soda moment. And um, yeah, I think once you've kind of gone in with that like radical idea of transparency, you have that idea around an aesthetic and then, you know, that's what informed us to look bold and colorful and fun and try and make it health approachable and not too serious. So you won't see my face on the website or like my signature on the can, like deliciously hue or something like that. It's not the profile for the brand. We have cartoon characters. We have a cartoon world that speaks to people that can say quite serious messages. It's representative of the population. This is for everyone. You know, we have a 50-50 male, female following on Instagram, um, even though I know that probably doesn't cover all of the, you know, genders, et cetera. Like they should even change the categorization of those metrics I'm seeing. But, you know, all backgrounds. And that's what our cartoon world is meant to show. So that's kind of what the brand is. It's inclusive. It's affordable. It's approachable, but it's got a really strong message behind it. Um, and then it stands out. And I think that kind of sums it all up, really. Yeah, I, I think it, that's super interesting because the, when you are a disruptor or a challenger, right, you have to strike the balance of originality, innovation, famili familiarity. You know, your, your appeal becomes broader. Did you ever thought about that? Did you ever, were you afraid of becoming too niche by the sheer amount of going all the way into rebellious and bold? One of the things I've learned from moving to America versus the UK is the way the positioning of challenger brands in both markets is actually subtly different. My personal opinion is that sometimes in the UK, challenger brands can get too bogged down with picking the wrong enemy or picking the wrong challenge. And I think sometimes they end up talking about what they're not more than what they are. And I think early on, we spoke too much about too much about soda, too much about sugar, that we weren't actually telling people why they should drink ugly, that it was refreshing, that it tasted great, that it was healthy, etc. We were saying, well, it doesn't have this in it. It doesn't have that in it. It doesn't have any of this. And so I think challenger brands in the U UK, I think, is the best, my opinion, best in the world at building challenger brands. But I think sometimes, because we're so good at it, get bogged down in, okay, we're going to take on this challenge or this, but actually it can be quite niche, something that only central London really cares about. Um, and I think sometimes brands can get bogged down in, in that. And there's a great book in a company, oh, Eating the Big Fish is the book by Adam Morgan and his, his business, which I think, I can't remember the name of his company, uh, but they have, you know, a website, I think it's Challenger Project. And I remember listening to something they spoke about and an exercise for any brand is to take your same brand and almost have concentric circles and pick different enemies. So I remember we did one exercise, I think it was a lunch product and it was like, are you taking on sandwiches? Are you taking on packed lunches? Are you taking on lunch as a whole? Like, could you, like, Huel, meal replacement, right? Are you taking on bad lunch? You know, are you taking on bread? Like, et cetera. Like, there's lots of different enemies. And then when you play yourself against those, the world of your brand can expand. And, like, that's a really interesting exercise that we did a lot. And I think when we've moved to America now, we're a lot trying to think a lot broader and a lot more mainstream rather than going after specifics as much in our marketing and i think in america they maybe sometimes miss some of those classic challenges and brew dog's a great example right taking on craft beer and i just think getting it's a really interesting exercise that you know has helped us a lot and i think we're trying to expand beyond telling people what we're not now rather than saying we're not soda we are you know in fact a great tasting sparkling water 
Super interesting exercise. Yeah, I, I haven't come across that, but I, but I, I'm sure that everyone who's listening to us should <laughs> get into yeah get this book and and get this exercise going. I 100 percent it's uh, super super helpful. You touched on on something interesting about the difference between UK and US, right? What do you think was the key trick or the key um, strategy for you to to go all in to the US, which is a place that we know it's much more competitive? Yeah. We haven't cracked it yet. We're three years in, so you know we're growing and we're doing we're doing well. But it's been a slog and like a lot of painful lessons, as, as we discussed earlier. The list of mistakes is long, and so you know I think for anyone in the UK looking at moving to this market, you are going to make mistakes. I think that's the reality: is that you have to be incredibly resilient and know that uh, you're making a big decision and a big move. I think we, I underestimated, I know it sounds crazy, the time zone. When I was in the UK and we launched the business in the US, the time zone makes it almost impossible to really grow a business because the competition is working here 24 seven. You can think you can pull it off, but you can't be a hundred percent. And so moving here was transformative for our company, physically moving myself moving my life to America, which is a big decision for a lot of people, changes then the geography of your mentality and your thinking. Um, because when you're in London and in the UK, you, you think London's the center of the world, right? And it's very easy to, and London is still one of the centers of the world, but it's not, you know, when you're in New York, you're very much thinking about New York and America. And so making that shift was, I'd say, the real key. The minute we did that, and some of the other team moved here as well, the organization started to, you know, you start noticing things, learning things faster, making connections, and things started to click. But obviously, that's a big decision for a lot of people. And we did it quite early on in the company's history. And then I'd say really understanding the intricacies of the, the geography of the country. Um, I think whatever business model you have, whatever type of business you're doing, the scale of the country makes, makes a lot of impact. Uh, you could just launch a drinks company in Texas and have a have one of the biggest drinks companies in the US. So you don't necessarily need to think about the whole country as um, overwhelming as, as you might think. You can do the US in bite-sized chunks. Um, and I think it looks so overwhelming from the UK on a map. But in reality, it's a, it's a collection of cities that are about the same size as London and then states that have a lot of people in them. So if you actually break it up and, and consider the country in chunks, I think that's important. But then also respecting the size of the country, the time zones, which is also its opportunity, but you can spread yourself thin too. You can waste a lot of money transporting products around or, or flying your team around or you know, setting up in the wrong location. So I think they're like very basic things that if you, if you think about that, you actually go, okay, maybe we could do a test in New York or a test in Texas, see if it works. It's a UK brand. Maybe I'll move to the US. And again, things absolute, right? Which is another thing I've learned. It's like, maybe you move to Texas for six months and see if it works. You don't have to move forever. I think that breaks it down a little bit because otherwise I think people are like, oh, I can't, we can't launch in the US. That's such a big project. No chance of us ever doing that. It's impossible. But actually, we, start, we started selling in one shop, right? Same as we did in the UK. And then we've built from there now in, what, 15,000. So it's like, just keep building. Little by little, yeah. And what was, what was the biggest mistake that you made when you moved to the, to the US? You said that you had a list of <laughs> mistakes that you learned from. We well, need another what, two what hours. What was the biggest <laughs> one? <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Because, because I wouldn't change anything either. Probably the biggest mistake I made 
was there's probably some hires I made that were probably a little underformed, under informed, sorry. And I should probably have used other people or a network of people who've been there and done it in this market to help me identify the right talent, if that makes sense. I thought because I'd done it in the UK that I could come over here, review a resume, interview someone, speak to their references, make a good hiring decision. But actually, there's a lot of nuance, certainly in you know things like sales, where you have to understand how a country's distribution and the customers and have a little black book of contacts. I think I could probably have done that better. And I think that's a theme for the whole business is the on the people side, really spreading the risk and getting a number of people who are inside ugly, but also outside ugly to interview people to really make sure you bring the right hires in. Because if you make the wrong decision, it can cost you six months, 12 months. It can, it can disrupt the company. You have people coming and going and we now have a lot more stability and have the right team in place. But I think early on when I first moved, I could get, you know, won over by brand names I'd seen on people's resumes or great references, but actually maybe wasn't quite hiring what we needed. And so I think that's that's a big thing. If you move to this market, it's very diff- very different type of resume to judge, very di- different type of educational backgrounds, different types of experience, different types of company. You know, a lot of companies here are massive. So like, and it depends what stage they join the brand that you've heard of. Were you the first employee or the thousandth employee? Very different business situations. You know, other things are just things we've tested and learned. I mean, when we first launched direct to consumer here, the boxes we used uh, were the same boxes we ship in the UK. And we don't really have any damages, but we didn't have any damages back home. So we thought, well, the same box we ship our drinks in in America is going to be fine. But you realize, you realize in week one, when you have consumers saying, my box is wet, everything's drenched, all the cans have exploded because they've been dropped by you know, a delivery driver or been flown in a plane. And then you realize the scale of this country that some weeks it can be sunny and warm in Florida and snowing in Minnesota that you have with water. It either gets too hot and can explode if it's like, you know, it gets to you know, really insane temperatures or it can freeze on someone's doorstep. And so we had to spend, you know, a lot of time re-engineering things that we'd never thought of like that. So you could say that's a mistake, but it was, I think, educated. We did, we tested the box. You know, can it get from Pennsylvania to New York? Yes, that's great. Let's do it everywhere. Can it get from Pennsylvania to Los Angeles? Turns out it can't. (laughs) And now we have a lot of grumpy customers and we have a lot of boxes that aren't suitable. And so, you know, I was responsible for that. Yeah, it's just something you don't think of when you've got a million moving parts, right? For us even to get to the stage where we had a website that shipped product somewhere, the, fact, the last hurdle was the fact the box wasn't strong enough and then the whole thing falls apart, right? So, yeah, things like that. But that's they're just they're battle scars now that we have, that we've gone through, that make our team and our mentality stronger. So I don't regret anything. But although at the time we had a lot of emails to reply to. So let's talk about the, the vision of the company a little bit more from like the get-go. So you and, and your co-founder, Joe, have, I, I'm assuming you had a shared vision when you started. Did you ever have any moments of having to compromise on the vision or any challenges between you two to say, we should, we should take route A and, you know, the other one saying route B and how, how did it go? How did you solve your, your challenges between co-founders? 
It's a great question. I think actually most of our challenges were around, should we have plants in the office or should we not have plants in the office? Or should or where should we go for dinner for our team social this week? I think they probably caused the biggest arguments. We've ordered too, mo- too many pizzas for the team, that sort of thing. But actually, when it came to, when it came to the, the big decisions and the brand vision, I think that's what we were always very aligned on, the scale of ambition and the the brand, what it was going to be. And so we never really had issues on that. I think it's, it's I guess, like any relationship, isn't it? It's those the silly things. Someone's not taking the rubbish out or you know someone's left a coffee cup on the side. They're the little things that when you spend so much time together add up over a long period of time. So yeah, I think we were pretty lucky on to be on the same page on vision. And then when the two of us were living in different countries, I guess that created a different dynamic. So we were used to being on Zoom a lot before coronavirus hit so a lot of zoom calls to stay aligned um and then obviously running it in two countries makes it you know makes it very difficult but one of the best thing is ugly has always been very clear on what it is what it isn't set that out very early on so actually you can kind of if people are fit the right dna and fit the values whether it's joe or somebody else in the business you can kind of trust that the decisions are working kind of on a, a rough path and so that's because of the clarity and because of the way we train and educate people on what we're doing. So I think we've been pretty consistent on that, which is why the brand looks similar in both countries and rather than two different companies, which is a real delicate part of it. That's really, really good. So important. And so important when you're hiring, right? Because then people feel the consistency of, uh, of leadership as well. Yes, exactly. And, um, so what I say, like I obviously spoke about the visuals of our brand, but really the brand is every person you hire, every word they say, every email, every Zoom call. That's the, the brand experience. And um, when the pressure's really on and the company's under a lot of pressure, you know, that brand's really put to the test. The last 12 months has been incredibly difficult. I mean, it's for everybody in every way. But having our brand connecting us, I think, kept us going through it as a team, despite the fact you know, some of us haven't seen each other for 12 months at this point. So um, it's pretty crazy. What is the size of the team right now? How many of you in the UK and in the US? So we're actually a very lean team. So uh, we're fully remote. We are eight full-time employees. And then we have probably about 20 or 30 people, different third parties, different agencies, consultancies, who we work very closely with. And we have like very close relationships Some of those parties are in our Slack channel, for example. And that's been a conscious decision to not build a really heavy organization and actually try and keep it very simple and very lean. Um, I think if you'd have asked me three years ago, or even two years ago, I'd have said, oh, we're going to have 50 employees. You know, if we had 50 employees, I think we'd have a lot more bureaucracy, a lot more process. I think we'd be moving slower. We'd have been less able to react to coronavirus. So actually being lean and using different partners and parties has allowed us to be very flexible. I think the team will probably double in the next like six months as we recover, as the world recovers. But yeah, and then uh, kind of, you know, we have two or three employees in the UK right now um, and then the rest in the US really. So we're very lean, but like I said, we've, we've been remote and global for quite a long time. So actually we're kind of all solving each other's problems. US team helps on the UK, UK team helps in the US different consultants worth on both businesses. So our Amazon team here helps on the UK Amazon business. D2C team is global for, for uglydrinks.com. Uh, SEO stuff is global. Our email marketing is global. Like you kind of get synergies. So 
I, I actually think it's, you know, previously people used to brag, didn't they? Oh, we've got a thousand employees or got a hundred employees, but actually it's better to have a lean team now. I think it shows that you can manage resource more effectively. Yeah, I think it's a great practice for for people who are starting their a D two C business now, a B two C business, right? Who should be their first hires? Who was the, your key hire right in the beginning? That you're like, okay, after our co-founding team, our founding team, who are the who's the the person who really makes a huge difference in a in a B two C company? Yeah, so so I mean, it's a great question, and I would really encourage people to. Again, I've got to think about the right way to phrase this. Every company is different, but I would really consider waiting as long as you can to hire and really thinking it through who you need. As soon as you hire, there's more process, you know, more people management, all of those side of things. Traditionally, you know, a startup might be like, we need a load of interns in and we need to get some, you know, cheap employees in to help us do a load of stuff. But that creates a lot of management. You don't necessarily give the interns a great experience like Sometimes it can be good, sometimes not. So I'd actually think like investing in the right person can actually save you two or three hires down the line. And because we've got the right leaders in key positions, it actually means we don't need to hire five or six people to help those people out. We actually have people who are very capable and capable of managing external partners. D to C wise, I mean, again, it, I would teach yourself as much as possible. Um, I think we've been really good at teaching ourselves and all the information's on the internet. So like, once you've taught yourself, you can then make a decision on where the gaps are. But I think if you just said, I'm going to hire, I want to start a D2C brand and I'm going to hire a head of D2C, then you're wasting money. I think on the, uh, like I said, on the retail side, if you're going to go into retail, I, I really do think learning yourself can take you quite far. And I think being able to not have the wall pulled over your eyes is pretty important by anybody, you know, customer, retailer, and team, et cetera. But certainly somebody who understands and has worked in the category that you're selling on the sales side, you know, certainly as an advisor or as an early employee, can be a game changer in terms of shaping how you get your product into retail. But I personally think you can get the right advisors around you. You can find really good outsourced partners to test and learn. And whether it's finance, legal, operations, sales, you can find really great outsourced partners to find out where your weaknesses are and where you as a team need to strengthen before you write your org chart and end up hiring 10 people and not being able to work out who's good and you know what actually the structure needs to be, which I think we've been guilty of at times. And so that's why we're taking a lot more of a rigorous approach, like hire really slowly and then make changes quickly if we need to. So that's kind of where, where, where our process is now. I think that's a very good approach. And, and, and I think it's sometimes counterintuitive that when you're starting out, you feel that you, you want the interns first, right? You, you, you want the, the, the people who doesn't cost you as much in the business. But effectively, if you hire well uh, right in the beginning with the senior people, you end up being able to expand much better and faster. So I, I think it's a very good, uh, good insight. It needs to be the right sort of senior person with the right balance and the right cultural values. But if you can get them in, they can help you avoid mistakes 18 months, two years away, and also take a lot of pressure off you as founders and do things that you're potentially not good at way better than you'd ever be able to teach yourself. So like that being said, I mean, we hired lots of interns and Orla, who's our, you know, she's still with the company, runs our global direct consumer and e-commerce now. Like she's incredibly talented, very bright and has continued to learn and grow. So we have a counter example where it's worked out well for us, but I think... 
you know, looking at the modern world as it is now, like really thinking before you hire, I think is, uh, you're responsible. You become responsible for somebody's salary, income, family. Like you really have to think it through and make sure you're doing the right thing for your investors' capital and, and uh, your team, you know, what the company needs at that moment. So yeah, super important. Almost the most important thing I'd say. So let's talk a little bit about you as an individual, as an entrepreneur. So you describe yourself as eternally optimistic and ugly is all about the ugly truth. Can you keep yourself optimistic all the time or the truth is a little bit different? Uh, the truth definitely different. I think when it comes to business, I'm generally optimistic. I'm so passionate about it. And I believe in it so much that it's hard not to be optimistic that the this is the future and the future is coming. And therefore, I can find being rejected by investors or customers hard to take sometimes. So I'm like, why can't you see the future? <laughs> so that can be difficult to take. And being, I think being, being optimistic isn't necessarily always the best habit for an entrepreneur. I think you can get let down quite a lot, but you do need it to keep team motivated and to inspire the vision. So it's a delicate balance. So I think a healthy dose of realism and, you know, sometimes some paranoia is actually probably the best balance for an entrepreneur. It doesn't necessarily make for like the healthiest mental health situation. And so I think working on your mental health and your physical health is a big lesson I've learned over the last like five years. There were periods where, you know, you're in your mid twenties, you think you're invincible, you can work all the time, but you definitely neglected some of those things. And I think, you know, we, we've spoken today about, mistakes and challenges and they're inevitable but like the plan you write down on day one the only thing you can plan for is that that won't happen <laughs> guaranteed so you have to know that you, when you start a business you're jumping into a, a roller coaster and the thing is people can hear me say that and they can read that in a book and they can go oh starting a business is a roller coaster but it's like when you're actually going into the crushing lows and they're happening like week after week and you're in a pandemic locked at home, <laughs> like that's a real ride. And it's a real, really something you have to prepare yourself mentally and physically for and know you're willing to put yourself through because it's not pleasant all of the time. It's not pleasant much of the time, really. It's tough. Um, and I think entrepreneurs and founders and founding teams and teams need to take care of themselves mentally and physically and make sure they're not leaning on the wrong crutches when things get tough. And I've had to learn that the hard way as much as anyone. Um, and the last 12 months, I think, for everybody listening has probably opened their eyes to, you know, healthier habits, hopefully, but also things that that we maybe appreciate now we don't have them as well that you can use to help balance. And I just think that's so important. As like a young entrepreneur, I was like just powered into the business, steamed into it without thinking. And now you get a bit older and you, you're like, okay, actually, that's why people talk about balance all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I know that's not necessarily what you asked me, but that, that ties into the optimistic bit. It's like you have to take care of yourself. Otherwise, you know, optimism becomes really difficult. Yeah. You just keep going, right? You don't know when it, when it ends and you, you lose track of your triggers of, you know, the, the kind of the signs of I'm going to burn out or I'm going to get into depression. You know, that's all those things. You kind of lose track of the signs. And those things are silent sometimes, right? Like you say triggers there is like exactly the word, right? It's really hard to see them sometimes when you're head down working and you're quite right. So that's a good point. Yeah. What do you do to prevent those uh, mega lows to be too lows? 
No, I, I think it's difficult. And like my personality type makes that a challenge because I feel stuff. I get excited. I feel hurt. I, you know, I feel things. I really care about what we're doing. I think what, you know, like it sounds so obvious, but I think looking after yourself and separating yourself from the company is massively important. Something I've struggled with because my, my name is Ugly Hugh on Twitter, right? Or Instagram. I am very much associated with the brand. And so I think when the brand's having a bad day, it doesn't mean I have to have a bad day. And I think things like exercise you do for yourself when you, when you run 10 K or five kilometers or go to the gym or whatever your thing is, that's in your control. You're looking after yourself, your physical health, your mental health, same as having therapy or meditating or whatever your thing is to help on the mental side. That's something you can control every day. There's 24 hours in a day. If you can give yourself an hour or two hours just for yourself, I think that's something I've learned certainly during coronavirus is like, maybe it's that walk at lunchtime in the sunshine or the rut, or you know, I ran this morning, right? And when I woke up, I definitely didn't want to. But you feel so much better. The rest of your day is impacted by it. And you know, if things go wrong, then you're better able to deal with it. And as certainly as you as you're a leader, I think that's important. So you need to find those things that you can consistently do every day, create a routine that just keeps you balanced. But some days are gonna suck. And then you need to get a good night's sleep and wake up the next day and start again. What you shouldn't do is go out and drink 10 beers and wake up with a hangover because we've all been there as well. Drowning, drowning your sorrows is not something I recommend for anyone. And really being kept in the same with sugar as well. If you go and eat a load of chocolate and ice cream and like drink loads of alcohol when you've had a bad day, it just that that's when you really get into a bad spike cycle. Yeah, I agree. So you, uh, what are you mostly curious about at the moment? Diet in particular, I've got very interested in recently. I've been learning a lot about the paleo diet, a ketogenic diet, um, understanding you know, the impact of sugar, particularly on the diet, how that impacts the health of countries and the happiness of people. I think it affects your sleep, which it affects your mood. Sleep is massively interesting to me. I was always someone who said I could work off four or five hours a night, but I'm like you. I could literally track my sleep and I know if that's gone well or not. And then, like I said, I, I started, you know, not to be one of those people who bangs on about it, but I started CrossFit or like functional fitness you know, midway through the pandemic, I, I probably hadn't lifted a weight for like five years, certainly not done any of the gymnastic stuff. And I just think I've learned that you can go and hit the treadmill or you can do, but really there's nothing like learning a full spectrum of um, exercises and, and stretching and weights and, and cardio as well. And for me, it's changed a lot about my mentality. It's changed my mental health. It's changed my posture, my everything like it, the way you know even just like you know i'm i'm a 31 year old guy right but like you're hoping that you're building a base for the when you're older you can pick up boxes or pick up your children or whatever it is so I, for me that's become really interesting because i felt my body change very quickly and it you know it makes you and it makes you feel great so i've been interested in reading about that and how that affect how that affects the brain and you know, whilst I've got this opportunity to like not have to go out for dinner and drinks and those things we used to do, it actually can be very, you know, really focused on those things. And so that's what's really interesting me at the moment, alongside about a thousand other things. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the future of ugly and everything. Right? Yeah. And, every, and alongside that, non, non-alcoholic drinks as well. And um, cutting down alcohol consumption, I think, is super interesting for a lot of people. I certainly think in the UK, there is a drinking culture that is pretty crazy. So yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. 
Cool. Uh, any resources, any books that you suggest uh, on, on those topics of uh, looking after your body? And I just read a book called, I'm looking at it now, Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar and Survival. Got nine hours plus sleep and like a bunch of benefits. Super interesting book on your body, sleep, diet. I mean, my apartment here is just full of books. But yeah, that was, that was a super interesting book, but I'd recommend that to anyone. That's a good one. Right. I'm loving this conversation. I could go like on and on. I think we can get along very well here. And I, Sadly, I have another Zoom. I'm sure we both have another Zoom to go on to, right? We both have another Sadly. Zoom to go. So, uh, Hugh, any last messages you want to leave our awesome audience with? Uh, if you want to find out more about Ugly, we're uglydrinks.com on the internet, Ugly Drinks on Instagram, Twitter, etc. And then I'm Ugly Hugh. If you want to tweet me, Instagram DM me, uh, you can find my email, email address not too hard on the internet if you want to get hold of me and I'll try and help if I can with anybody doing anything that's uh, a similar journey so because we've had a lot of help on our way so hopefully that's helpful thank you so much for listening so far make sure that you listen to other episodes you can go to hypercurious.fm and if you want to stay in touch I'm around I'm on LinkedIn I'm on Twitter I'm on Instagram you just search for my name and you're gonna find me If you love this conversation and more, make sure that you also do a five star and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if that's your preferred podcast app. It will mean the world to me. For now, ciao, ciao.